Good morning. Uh, thank you for reading uh, God's Word for us today. Um, thank you for your hospitality. Uh, it's great to be here uh, with you all again here in Virginia's here worshiping uh, at Champlain uh, Valley Christian Reformed Church. I'm um, sorry my wife and, and child can't be here today. Uh, they're in Virginia coming back tomorrow, uh, but they, of course, send their best uh, and their love to you too. Uh, today is uh, Palm Sunday. Um, on this day, uh, roughly 2,000 years ago, Jesus rode into Jerusalem on a donkey, uh, and as he did so, uh, a bunch of people lined the streets, uh, and they went before him waving palm branches in the air, just like you saw some of the children do, uh, shouting and, and singing, Hosanna, meaning save us, we pray. Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Uh, blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Uh, Hosanna in the highest. People are excited, uh, and particularly they're excited about Jesus. The question that I think Palm Sunday raises is that how do you go from this? How do you go from Hosanna, praise God, praise Jesus, on Sunday to crucify him? Crucify him, crucify him on Friday, five days later. How do you go from Hosanna to crucify him in the span of five days? It's the same question that's really raised by our text today. I mean, one minute Peter is calling Jesus the Messiah, and then the next minute he's pulling Jesus aside and he's rebuking him. And he's tearing him to shreds in front of the other disciples saying, Jesus, you're wrong. Uh, you're an embarrassment. You're a fool. You know, what's going on there? Why are so many people, and not just those outside the church, but those who are inside it as well, men and women like Peter, why are we so ready to accept Jesus one minute uh, and then rebuke him and reject him and even murder him uh, the next I think the answer uh, to a question like that is that I think it's very easy uh, for us to uh, treat God like a genie in a bottle. Uh, someone who is there to serve us, but we don't have to serve. Um, someone who exists for our sake, right, rather than us existing for his. Throughout the ages, I think humanity has loved uh, their gods like this. We love gods who don't demand much of us, but who are beck and call, ready to meet our demands. We like gods who are there only when we want them to be there, who pop up when it's convenient, uh, and then disappear when it's convenient too. Gods who pop up to do what we want them to do. We like gods like that. We like gods who exist to make us happy, gods who exist to satisfy our desires uh, and to give us what we want. We like gods like this because we imagine that the problems that we have are all out there, and we imagine that he or they are the solutions to all the problems out there, rather than imagining that the problems are actually inside here, right, inside our heart. We like gods like this, and I think if we're honest, 
right? We often uh, approach Jesus uh, like this. Peter did. Uh, Peter related to Jesus uh, in this way. Uh, Look uh, at verse uh, 27. Jesus asks his disciples, "Uh, who do the people say that I am? And the disciples tell him, well, the talk of the town is that you're like John the Baptist. You're John the Baptist or like him, right? Some say Elijah. Others say uh, you're a prophet. I mean, the common denominator uh, to all of these claims is that Jesus is a prophet, right? He's good. Uh, He might even be great, uh, but he is not God. Um, He is not necessary. And that is where public opinion uh, falls short of the truth. But Jesus asks his disciples, well, okay, uh, who do you say that I am? He poses this question to all of the disciples, and Peter, speaking on behalf of them all, says, well, we think you're the Christ. Christ is the Greek word for Messiah, right? We think you're the Messiah. We think you're the one who's going to make everything wrong right again. And when Peter says to Jesus, we think you're the Messiah, he's using a very loaded phrase, very loaded title, because this is who he thinks the Messiah is, and this is what he thinks the Messiah is going to do. In Peter's mind, the Messiah is a warrior king like David, who's going to storm Jerusalem and overthrow the Roman Empire. When he says, we think you're the Messiah, he thinks that's who Jesus is. A warrior king is going to storm Jerusalem and kick uh, the Romans out. You see, for hundreds of years, Israel has been living uh, under Roman rule. Their home has been uh, enemy-occupied territory. Uh, I was last week just in uh, visiting Holland and Germany. My family is from Holland. I know uh, you can trace your roots there, too, uh, many of you. Uh, and my family grew up, uh, my, my grandparents lived under Nazi occupation. Uh, they were there the entire duration of the war in a small town called Alton. Israel had been living under Roman rule for a very long time, longer than five years, right? Hundreds of years. They have been used to enemies uh, in their towns, in, in their homes. And they believed that the Messiah was going to change all of that. He's going to kick the Romans out, and he's going to establish a new Davidic kingdom. Listen to the words that the people are saying as Jesus, you know, comes into town. Hosanna the highest, you know, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the one who's going to establish the kingdom of our father, David. Romans gone. And instead of uh, towns named uh, Caesarea Philippi, right, just another example, just proof that, yeah, we were living uh, in towns named after Caesar. They're like, yeah, we'll do away with that. Maybe instead of Caesarea Philippi, it could be St. Petersburg. And Peter's probably like, ah, I like the sound of that. I like the sound of that. So when Peter says, Jesus, you're the Christ, you're the Messiah, he's excited because he likes the direction that things are going, at least in his mind. And he sees 
this is going to work out really beautifully for him. It's not just going to be great for the country. It's really going to be great for Peter. You know, he can't believe his luck. He's like, I'm best friends with Jesus, and Jesus is the Messiah, and he's the one who's going to kick the Romans out of Jerusalem. And when all of this shakes down, this is going to work out awesome for me. Jesus might get the governor's mansion, but shoot, I might get the lieutenant governor's mansion, maybe a swimming pool, certainly a new fishing boat, some new threads. When Peter says, Jesus, you're the Christ, you're the Messiah, I imagine him high-fiving the other disciples and maybe giving James and John a little fist bump. This is going to be awesome. Jesus doesn't deny that he's the Messiah. But when he starts talking again, he's not talking about Roman rules uh, and swimming pools. In verse 31, Jesus begins teaching them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes. He must be killed. And after three days, he must rise again. And he said this plainly. I imagine at this point, Peter sort of nervously laughing like, what? What did you say? And then when the reality of what Jesus has just said, when the reality of that sinks in, he's confused. And he's not just confused. He's angry, right? He's upset. Because when Peter closed his eyes and he dreamt of what his life was going to look like one year, five years, 10, 15 years from now, he envisioned it going a certain way. And it was a pretty future. And when Jesus starts talking about suffering and dying and crucifixion and resurrection, he sort of like hit the a-bomb on Peter's dreams there. He just kind of blew that up, which is why Peter pulls Jesus aside and starts rebuking him, saying, you can't be serious, right? You're the Messiah, Jesus. You're supposed to kill the Romans. You're not supposed to be killed by them. You're supposed to be a winner. So why are you talking like a loser, Get with the program, Jesus. Get in line. Jesus is rebuked by Peter, but Peter rebukes Jesus in turn. And he does so pretty harshly. He says to his friend, get behind me, Satan. Kind of escalates it a little bit. Get behind me, Satan. You are not setting your things You're not setting your mind uh, on the things of God, but only on the things of man. In other words, Jesus says to Peter, Peter, you're only focused on man things. You're only obsessed with things that every, you're obsessing about things that everybody else is obsessed with. You're just thinking about man things. Peter You're just thinking about riches and reputation. That's all you're thinking about. 
You're just thinking about fame and fortune. You're just thinking about power and prestige. That's all you want. You're not concerned about the things of God. You're not thinking in terms of service. You're not thinking in terms of sacrifice. You're not thinking about salvation. You see, Peter thinks that his problem is primarily a political problem. He thinks his problem and his people's problem is ultimately a Roman problem. And if only we could just get rid of the Romans, if only we could get our guy in office in the White House or in Jerusalem, everything's going to be a-okay. And that's the problem he thinks that the Messiah has come to fix. But you see, God sees it a little bit differently because he doesn't think you have a Roman problem, and he doesn't think that ours is a Republican problem or a Democrat problem, right? Our problems are not primarily out there or in uh, Montpelier or in Washington, D.C. Our problem is with what's going on inside of here. Ours is a sin separation problem. Ours is that we don't love God with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength. We don't love our neighbor as ourselves. We don't love this world that God has entrusted to our care. And that has made a separation between us and God. And what the Messiah has come to do is to bridge that gap. To deal with that sin separation so that we can be reconciled with the God who loves us. And the heart of this plan is the Messiah going to a cross to bear our sin and our shame, to take the punishment our sins deserve so that there is no more wrath left for you uh, and for me. And he's not just doing this for Peter and his compadres. He's not just doing this for the Jews. He's doing this for the Gentiles too. He's doing it for the world. And this, all of this, is rocking Peter's world. That's making him upset. Who Jesus is and what he has come to do, right? What, when we say Jesus is the Messiah, I mean, getting our heads around that and rightly understanding that is really the focus uh, of these first uh, few verses, but the focus shifts, right, from Jesus talking about who he is and what he's going to accomplish, then to us, you know, to the disciples, people who would follow after Jesus says, this is what I'm going to do, but this is now what I expect uh, of you. This is what I expect uh, of those uh, who would follow after me. Let's go ahead and just read those verses again, okay? Starting at verse 34. Then he called the crowd to him along with his disciples and said, If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for me and for the gospel's sake will save it. What good is it for a man to gain the whole world, yet forfeit his soul? 
Well, what can a man give in exchange for his soul? If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will also be ashamed of him when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. If you read that paragraph closely, uh, you'll see that Jesus highlights something. He highlights that we all possess something very, very valuable. You have it. I have it. We all have it. That very valuable possession is not a smartphone. It's not a big screen TV. It's not a car in the driveway. It's not your house. Right? The most valuable thing in, in your possession uh, is your soul. It's the most valuable thing that you own. And you can, positively speaking, save it. You can, you can keep it. And you can, negatively speaking, lose it, forfeit it, give it away. I want to start there for a second. Like, how is it, negatively speaking, that we could lose uh, or forfeit our soul? Jesus says, if you want to save your life, you will lose it. And if you want to, if you lose your life, you will save it. And for a second there, you're like, wait, that's, comp- <laughs> what did he just say? Like that's, and he's intentional, right? He's speaking, there's a paradox here that is meant to arrest you, to kind of stop you in your tracks. And I imagine Peter was probably like rubbing his face like this, you know, just like, what are you talking about, Jesus? <laughs> and if you feel that way at this point, well, that's all right. You can relate to Peter, and in some ways you're supposed to. But Jesus says, yeah, this is the way to, negatively speaking, lose your soul by trying to save it, um, by playing it safe. Um, What does it profit a man to gain the whole world but to forfeit his soul? One of the ways that you can lose your soul is by trying to keep a tight grip on it, by holding too tightly, by having the whole world by pursuing comfort and ease. What does it gain a man to have the whole world, uh, the world at your fingertips? Think about it. We as a people, uh, in Americans in the 21st century, never before has a people existed that has had so much at their fingertips. Everything we want was, is in some ways just one click away. We have so much and so much access to everything that you could possibly want. You have a desire, you can satisfy it instantly. You know? What does it gain a man to have all of that? What does it gain a man to, what, is it, what do you profit to be an American? an American in the 21st century, but to forfeit your soul. Um, You want to lose your life? Jesus says again, try to play it safe. One of the ways you can play it safe, Jesus says, is by being ashamed of me. You want to be safe, you don't want to be made fun of, you want to like hold on to your life, don't associate with me. If you want to save your soul, um, 
Well, we'll talk about that in a second. What does, he, what does Jesus mean by being ashamed? Like being ashamed of me. I mean, I think of like when, if you're ashamed of something or someone, what you want to do is you want to keep that person or that thing uh, far away from you as possible. You don't want to be seen with it or seen with him or seen with her. You don't want them to get too close. Because if they get close, well, gosh, that would look bad on you. And that could really be uncomfortable. And Jesus says, yeah, if uh, you want to lose your life, that's a good way to do it. Don't let me get in too close. You know, don't let me get involved. Which is to say, if you want to save your soul, you've got to let Jesus get uncomfortably close. You've got to let him interfere with your life. You've got to let him call the shots. If you want to save your life, positively speaking, what you've got to do is you've got to be willing to lose it. You've got to be willing to lose it. And Jesus clarifies what he means by that in verses 34 uh, and 35. It says, whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for me, right, for my sake, and, and for the gospel's sake, uh, will save it. I mean, that's an important qualification. Jesus is saying, in order to save your life, you just got to lose it full stop. It's not saying, like, you can lose it in a game of poker, or you can lose it bungee jumping, or you can lose it, um, you know, Swimming with sharks in South Africa. He's not saying, yeah, that's the way to save your life. He's like, no, the way to save your life uh, is by being willing to lose it for my sake, right, and for the gospel's sake. It means, if you look at verse 34, denying yourself for my sake, saying no to yourself for my sake, saying no to yourself uh, for the gospel's sake. And this, Jesus says, you must do if you want to save your life, and this is what you must do uh, if you want to come after me. Um, I'm in the midst uh, of a Bible study um, with college students uh, at the University of Vermont. Uh, We're spending the entire semester really looking at the life of Peter, and we came uh, upon this passage about a month ago. And when we did, um, you know, I spent a week with this passage, Monday night, Tuesday night, Wednesday night, and Thursday afternoon. And every time felt tension and struggle as I sat with this and asked Jesus, like, what is it that you want from me? Like, what do you mean by this? What do you mean that I must deny myself for your sake and the gospel's sake? Like, what do you want? And I don't know if um, this is your experience. It certainly is mine. But there are times when sometimes we approach the Scriptures and we feel like we're over it. Like, here I am. I'm looking down on the text. Like, I'm over it, and I'm studying it, and I'm searching it. But there are times as I read it where I'm like, no, that's over me. And it's searching me, and I'm being the one who's studied here. And this is a passage where I, I, I feel this sharply and profoundly. Um, what does Jesus want from me? And maybe you're asking, like, what does Jesus want from me, uh, as you ask yourself? What does he want me to do? 
What does it look like uh, to give up, to take up my cross and to follow him, to say no to myself? And as I asked that question and thought about it for just Monday night, Tuesday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, et cetera, et cetera, I mean, what I came up with, I mean, I th- was in sort of a way of thinking about it that was helpful for me, and I pass it on to you, hoping uh, that it'll be helpful for you too. Here's what I think Jesus is really going for, what he's really getting after. I want you to imagine, and you can close your eyes if you like, um, where you see yourself five years, ten years, fifteen years from now. Like, what kind of life do you want to have five, ten, fifteen years uh, from now? Can you picture it? I want you to imagine now going to a desk and you pull out a blank piece of paper and you pick up a pen or pencil and you start writing down everything that you envisioned. You start writing everything down uh, that you want. These are the things that I want. This is the health that I want. 5, 10, 15 years from now. These are sort of the relationships I want to have and the health of those relationships. I want it to be like this. Here's the financial security that I want. This is the job that I want or the job promotion that I want. These are how many kids I want and this is how well behaved I want them to be. This is the house I want. And this is the spouse that I want. Listen, you have a vision of the kind of life that you want to have 5, 10, 15 years from now. And I want you to imagine what it is like to write all of that out. And now I want you to imagine what it's like to take the pen that you use to write your story with and handing that pen over to Jesus and saying, this is yours, and you have the power to edit any of this. You can change or rewrite any of it. That is what it means to deny yourself for Jesus' sake to let go of the pen that you're using to write your story with and handing it over to Jesus. So that when Jesus says, look, I'm going to change this, you're saying, okay, I'm going to say no to that part of my story. I'm going to say no to that desire because you want to write my life a certain way. I'll say no, perhaps, to that perfect house and that perfect spouse. I'll say no to taking that new job and staying put. I'll say I'll wasn't maybe I wasn't thinking about it, but maybe I'll adopt that child. That that wasn't something that I had in mind, but it's something that you have in mind. Yeah, I'll, I'll adopt, or maybe I'll even let go of a child. I'll let you take him or her away from me. Handing the pen that you use to write your life and giving it to Jesus is a scary thing. 
It's a really unsettling thing. Because, of course, what you're letting go of is control, right? You're letting go uh, of authorship. And it's why Peter flips out. You know, he went into that conversation on that day with a vision, right? When Peter closed his eyes, he did, right? He saw his future playing out a particular way. He had written down, like, the things that he had wanted, and the kind of life that he imagined he was going to have. So when Jesus starts talking like that, in some ways what he's doing, Jesus is doing, he's sort of taking Peter's paper and he's sort of crumpling it up. And Peter's watching that happen in real time. He's seeing his dreams be sort of like crumpled up before him, and it's why he freaks out. But Jesus says, look, Peter, if you want, if you want to follow me, You've got to let me do this. Because where I'm taking you is not necessarily where you thought you were going to go. And yeah, your life is going to be an adventure, but it's not the one that you thought it was going to be. It's, there's twists and turns of the road that you couldn't foresee. And there's things that you want that are not good for you. And there's things that are better that I have for you. And you've got to let me write that into the script if you want to come after me. You know, Jesus uh, is a good author. Um, you know, this is his book. Um, and your life is a story, and he's a good storyteller. And he writes tragedies, not comedies. Like, Jesus is in the business of making sad things come on true, but there's laughter at the end, right? It's the kind of story he'd like to write with your life, but you've got to let him author it and you've got to let go of the pen my question for you today is what part of the story as you envision your life from this point on like what are things that you are holding very tightly to what are the things in your life that you would say to Jesus like yeah I'm ready to follow you I love you but don't mess with this or don't tinker with this or don't edit or change that Like, what are those things that you're holding very tightly to and you're just saying, Jesus, don't go there? I know you've got them. I do. As I lay in bed with my wife, um, we would talk about this, you know, as I was thinking about this, these things. And I asked her one night, you know, what is the thing that I asked her just the same question I put before you, like, what part of your life, or what is, is there something in your life where you feel like, yeah, I, I don't know if I could follow Jesus, or it would be very hard for me to follow Jesus if he changed this or took this away? And very quickly, we would say, yeah, there are, there are those things. Very quickly, one of those things has become my daughter. I'm a, I'm a fairly new dad. My, Willa is six months old. Um, it has become very easy very quickly for me to be like, I will follow you, Jesus, so long as you don't touch her, harm her, or take her away from me. Like, that's something that I don't know if I could bear. I'm holding to her very tightly in my heart. And I know Jesus wants to pry my fingers open. 
because he knows that if I hold very tightly to her, I could actually do damage to my daughter. My possessiveness could hurt her. And it's not saying that he's actually going to take her away. He might. But he's saying to me, there are things that I want Willa to do that you might not be comfortable with. Like I'm doing, I'm telling a story with her life too, and there are things that you might not like. There are places that she might go that might make you feel vulnerable and scared if I were to take her there. But you need to let me do that, and you need to let go. Or you need to lessen your grip on those things and let me author that part of her story and that part of mine. And the truth is, if I really want her, like, if Will is going to be who I want her to be, like, I've got to let go because I want her to be someone who is brave and courageous and who stands up for weak people, which presupposes that there she's going to be facing opposition and standing up to bullies and going into dark places. Like, that's who, my, my dream, my desire for my girl. But if she's going to be who she is to be, I've got to lessen my grip. Um, I just had a conversation with a student uh, just two days ago who was, um, she really wanted to meet. And uh, she is in a relationship, or in some ways not a relationship. Uh, she's intimately involved with a, uh, with a man, a college student. She's a college student. Um, and um, he doesn't like her like she likes him. And yet they're very, they're, they're having sex together. And I asked her about that, and she was open and honest. She said, yeah, we are. And she's like, but it's, you know, I feel like it's not right, and I, feel, I don't feel loved by him. I feel like I deserve to be treated better. And I'm like, yeah, I agree. Um, and she's like, what do you think I should do? And we talked a lot about it and talked about what, you know, what would it look like for Jesus to, what would it look like for her to really listen to Jesus, to sort of, and to give Jesus the pen here and say, you, you, you write the story. And she texted me the other day. She said, I actually, I, I said, no, I, we broke up. Like, as much as I wanted to, I knew that, like, my desire was that we could continue this, could, could keep this up, but I see that I, that's just not possible. Faithfulness to Jesus, fidelity to Jesus requires me to actually say no to this if I'm going to say yes to him. And, yeah, she's hurt. But she's also, like, if you were to read just what she sent me, I mean, she's also, like, there's, a, there's joy, too, knowing that, yeah, while she said no to this guy, she, she's got Jesus. Um, there's another guy, I'll just tell you a story of, uh, he's a friend of mine, he wrestles with uh, same-sex attraction, um, he doesn't, he doesn't, he wishes he didn't have it. Like, this is not something that he would have written into his story if he had the chance. Like, he certainly would have changed this. But God is not changing this. Uh, what God is calling him to is faithfulness, right? Despite his, like, in spite of his same-sex attraction. He's calling him, like, to abstinence and to celibacy, and that's really hard. But he's being really faithful to Jesus, even though God's not changing that part of the story, right? 
he's saying, follow me, and he is. And his faithfulness to Jesus, it's having a tremendous impact on his church community. Um, it's leading people into repentance and faith. Like, there's renewal happening because of my friend's faithfulness to Jesus, even though it's hard, even though he has to say no to those desires, even though he has to deny himself, right, for Jesus' sake, for the gospel's sake. And you see that, how that no is actually glorifying God in the life of his friends and in the life of his community. I know that giving up control is hard and it's painful and it's scary. It's why Jesus likens it to a cross, right? It's like taking up your cross. And the cross is a place of pain. It's a place of vulnerability. It's a place of shame. It's a place of ridicule. Like, you're not really going to follow him there. You're really not like one of those Jesus guys, are you? It's a place of forsakenness. Like, I've done all of these things for Jesus. I've done all of these things for you, God. Like, why do I feel so alone? Like, trust me, Jesus gets it. Like, it's not easy. But here's how it's possible. It's when you realize that Jesus denied himself and took up his cross and he did it for you. Because you see, Jesus really did deny himself. It's not simply that he didn't marry and didn't have kids and didn't have like a nice house in Judea. Like Jesus left heaven. Jesus left heaven. The immediate presence of God the Father and God the Spirit and the whole host of angels to come to this earth. And he was born in a feeding trough to a teenage bride in abject poverty. And then the Creator let his creatures nail him to a cross. And the reason why he denied himself and quite literally took up a cross is so that we could be reconciled with him. So that there would be no more enmity between God and man. So that you and I could have hope of a future, a bright future spent with him. And when you begin to see what Jesus has done for you, it does make it easier for us to let go of control of the pen and hand it to him. At the end of one Bible study, a student said, I can't let go of this pen unless I know two things. I need to know that the person I'm giving it to knows me and he loves me. And I promise you, Jesus knows you because he made you. And he loves you because he died for you. He is a good God. And he's maybe not the Messiah you thought you wanted, but he is the Messiah that we need.